Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Mussolini did not take power on his own. He and the Blackshirts were reactionary, revolutionary, and radical, and they were not a majority, at least not at the beginning. They did not take power by waiting for other elements in Italian society to become reactionary, revolutionary, and radical like they were. Instead, the fascists had to work with existing conservative elements within Italian society, like business interest, for instance. And the fascists and those other elements had to negotiate, find common ground, and form a coalition, often related to stopping socialists. That is how they took power. That is how a minority reactionary, revolutionary, and radical party was able to have its own country. And today, I want to talk about one of the largest culturally conservative elements that the Italian fascists cut a deal with. That's the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was, maybe, a potential source of anti-fascism. But, in 1929, the interest of Catholicism and the interest of fascism looked like they were one and the same. Now, we need to go back a little. We need some context. You might think that the Catholic Church, one of the most Italian institutions ever, would have been all about Italian unification. And you would be wrong. Prior to Italian unification, the Church resisted having Italy's boot all knitted up into one thing for a very good reason. The Church had sovereignty over a good chunk of the peninsula. And this area of church sovereignty was called, appropriately, the Papal States. And I'm not talking about just present-day Vatican City. I'm talking about a good chunk of central Italy. The Pope had, for a long time, moderately-sized tracts of land. And, in 1870, Italian unification meant an end to all of that. On September 20th of 1870, unification forces rolled into Rome and claimed the city as their own. Rome, the eternal city, it would belong to the Kingdom of Italy, a brand new constitutional monarchy. As you can imagine, the Catholic Church didn't like this one bit. This new state of being impacted how the Catholic Church, and the Pope in particular, interacted with Italy and the rest of the world. So, nowadays, picture a Pope. Picture a Pope doing, you know, Pope stuff. You might imagine the Pope traveling around the world, meeting with various luminaries, shaking hands and giving blessings to huge crowds of people in various international locales, and in general, the Pope is now a highly visible global person. But from 1870 until 1829, the Pope was nothing but. Instead of, say, zooming around the world, hanging out with the President or the Dalai Lama or whatever it is that Popes do, the Pope stayed in the Vatican, and five popes who served as pontiff from 1870 until 1929 are often referred to as the prisoners of the Vatican. For 59 years, the Bishop of Rome stayed in Rome. In fact, not just Rome, he stayed in the Vatican itself. A man who was in charge of a huge global church and organization whose very name, Catholic, means universal, limited himself to his palace and the surrounding grounds, which I have to imagine probably made him a little stir-crazy. I would go nuts. I mean, I would go nuts if I had to live like that. 
And this also meant that the Pope refrained from doing another very popey thing that you probably imagine popes doing. When you were picturing Pope stuff a minute ago, you probably also imagined the Pope standing on a balcony, addressing adoring crowds of Catholics in St. Peter's Square, all there to receive a blessing, take pictures, and say, hey, look, there's the Pope. Now, to do that, to do that iconic Pope thing that Popes do now, the pontiff would have had to stand on a balcony that faced the rest of Rome. And the five popes, who are now known as the prisoners of the Vatican, well, they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to even stand on a balcony and look at the capital city that had been taken from them. During Mussolini's rise, the pope at the time was particularly hidebound. Pius XI probably wouldn't have addressed crowds even if it was really expected of him. He was the kind of guy who didn't allow himself to be photographed very much, except in official photography, where he was photographed alone. He never, ever touched things like radios or telephones. And he was a man who, in general, took the trappings of the office very seriously. Pius XI seems to have been a kind of stern, hard man. A tough guy to get along with. Unlike previous popes who ate with their aides, or other Vatican officials, or visiting dignitaries, Pius XI always took his meals alone. He was also the type of guy who insisted that his own siblings, his own brothers and sisters, who had grown up with him, known him as a child, call him Your Holiness. And his staff and subordinates, who had to deal with his grim seriousness on a regular basis, joked that he often wore the papal crown to bed. He was not exactly a touchy-feely boss. In a lot of ways, he is the ideal prisoner of the Vatican. And incidentally, prisoner of the Vatican, it also sounds like the title of a hypothetical exploitation pulp novel or grindhouse movie of some sort. You know, prisoners of the Vatican! I imagine this hypothetical pulp novel or grindhouse movie involving sexy nuns, but maybe that's just me. Anyway... After the abolition of the Papal States, the Pope excommunicated the King of Italy and refused to recognize any Italian civil authority. For example, couples who got married in a church ceremony, well, they would also have to have a civil ceremony. And couples who got married in a civil ceremony, well, the church didn't recognize that. They would also have to have a church ceremony. So if wedding planning wasn't hard enough, if for 59 years in Italy, you'd have to have two of them for it to really count. And in the early 20th century, this would shift a little bit. Earlier in this series, I referred to a Catholic political party. And yes, the church did eventually sponsor an anti-socialist and anti-fascist party called the Popular Party in 1919. That was a brief pre-fascist flicker of Catholic Church political involvement in Italy, which the Church would quickly pull support from, given that the party turned out to be far less traditional than actual Church leadership. The rank and file on the Catholics, on the ground, who made up the bulk of the popular party, turned out to be far less churchy than the people who ran the churches, which, as somebody who was raised Catholic, I can tell you is a grand Catholic tradition. The popular party persisted, though. Uh, after 1919, it became an independent force, and it still self-identified as Catholic, even though it did not explicitly have church sponsorship. It persisted, at least, until Mussolini outlawed other political parties after he went full dictator in 1925. And another thing I really want to emphasize here is that when I'm talking about 
the Catholic Church in this context. It's a very different Catholic Church than the one that we deal with today. The contemporary Catholic Church really got its start during the Second Vatican Council, which took place from 1965 to 1968. During Vatican II, as it is now known, the Catholic Church modernized and reformed a lot. Uh, Probably the most famous change was that it allowed for Mass to be said in local vernaculars as opposed to just Latin. And there were other reforms such as evaluating scripture in proper historical and linguistic context as opposed to just reading it and taking it literally. And while the Church still thought of itself as being the one true path to God, in Vatican II it admitted that other religions or philosophies might hold some degree of truth as well. Now, it's not like that in Vatican II the Church went full Unitarian, but that was quite a break from tradition. So, when I'm talking about the Catholic Church in this episode, and when I mention them in future episodes, it's not the modern Catholic Church. It's the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church. It's the prisoner of the Vatican Catholic Church. It is not an organization that you, if you are a modern Catholic, would probably want to identify with very much. This institution, right now, is hidebound, traditionalist, and pretty beaten down. And it's an institution that's really not in any way, shape, or form a friend of liberal democracy, or the constitutional monarchy that Italy has had for a while now. Instead, for over half a century, the church has been at odds with liberal democracy. It has been at odds with the existing government. And Mussolini, a man who is not a liberal democrat at all, a man who is offering a whole new form of government, offered them a way out. Now Mussolini, for his part, is a pretty weird candidate to spring the Vatican from its prison. He was, for a long time, pretty anti-clerical. His parents, when he was growing up, did not baptize him. They were pretty anti-clerical. Early in life, he'd been nicknamed Mangiaprete, or priest-eater, and his anti-Catholicism is something that remained pretty constant during his career as both a socialist and later as a fascist. But Mussolini was also no stranger to changing his opinions or rhetoric. After all, he'd made that leap from socialism to fascism, from being kind of a revolutionary left-winger to the rightest right-winger ever, except for Hitler. We'll talk about him later. And the Catholic Church was an institution sitting right there, right in front of him, that would allow him to legitimate his powers even further. It was a social institution beloved among many of his other right-wing followers that he had to work with, so he could use it. Under Mussolini, the Catholic Church, which had been kind of pushed aside in the Kingdom of Italy so far, came back. Catholic iconography returned to Italian public spaces. Mussolini also appropriated money for church restoration. Cathedrals that had been falling apart and lying in ruins got a new coat of paint and more under the fascist government. Il Duce also enforced social policies that strict Catholics were all about. For instance, he closed gambling halls. He added Catholic holidays to the civil calendar. He opposed divorce, which is kind of ironic, given how many mistresses Mussolini had over the course of his career. But no matter, politicians are no strangers to hypocrisy about personal morality and manners of marriage. And in a very personal gesture for the priest-eater, 
he had his wife and kids get baptized. Uh, much to his wife's chagrin, by the way. His wife, Rachel, uh, was also extraordinarily anti-clerical, and I imagine she went to the baptismal font kicking and screaming. One wonders what was going through Mussolini's head at that time. Maybe he found it disturbing. Maybe he thought it was really, really uncomfortable that he had to cut a deal with the church. Maybe inside he was struggling. Or maybe he thought that religious rituals were all just empty gestures, and that it all meant nothing, and that if it meant nothing, it could do nothing. So why worry about it? Why worry about a few drops of water landing on your wife or your child's forehead? In any case, he did what he had to do to look good to the traditional elements within his base, even though he had nothing but contempt for actual spirituality. What's more, the Catholic Church was all about the sexual relations that the fascists advocated and that I talked about last episode. Again, one of the most personal aspects of Italian totalitarianism was all the laws, regulations, and social pressures they created to reinforce traditional gender roles. In the Catholic Church, they are an advocate for traditional gender roles. The fascists, they wanted to ban contraception, keep women out of the workforce, ban abortion, and the church was right there for that. The church and regime, they would have their differences, but they both advocated a return to an imagined traditional society that churchgoer and black shirt alike felt had faded away after years of secular democracy and could potentially vanish entirely if the socialists had their way. So Mussolini made the right gestures, had his family baptized, brought church holidays back, used Catholicism to booster his own legitimacy, and in turn, he bolstered the churches. Under Mussolini, instead of the Vatican being something subject to or inside Italian law or policy, it would become a state in and of itself. The organization that had once felt stifled and imprisoned by the Italian government would now deal with Italy as an independent government. Italy and Vatican City would no longer be like a landlord and a tenant. Instead, they would deal with each other state to state. Granted, Vatican City would do that as the smallest state in the world, like really, really small. Vatican City is less than a mile across. It's a country so tiny that if it wanted to host a marathon, you'd need to run around its border about seven or so times. Yeah, but still, technically, an independent country. And in addition to recognizing the Vatican as its own sovereign state, Italy would also grant extraterritorial privilege to other prominent church-owned buildings inside Italy, like the Castel Gandolfo, the Pope's summer residence, which no pontiff had set foot in for almost 60 years. The state would also recognize church marriages, and, very prominently, there were all manner of tax exemptions for church organizations, and the Italian government would also pay the church a hefty sum for all of their troubles these past few decades. So the church, they get to be their own country, they get a bunch of legitimacy and recognition, and they get a lot of sweet, sweet cash from the Italian government. It's a good deal for them. And when they are negotiating this thing, which would later become known as the Lateran Pact, you might have pictured Mussolini and the Pope as sitting down at a negotiation table, talking about this over espresso. After all, they both lived in Rome. 
But again, the Pope was determined to not leave the Vatican. The Pope would not set foot outside of his palace until after the Lateran Pact was signed and sealed. And Mussolini, the priest eater, even though he was still having his wife and kids baptized, he had no real desire to go into the Vatican and hang out there. So, when I'm talking about this deal, this accord, between the pontiff and the fascist dictator, the whole thing was discussed via couriers and emissaries. In particular, there was one emissary who ferried messages between the Pope and the dictator. His name was Tachi Venturi, a Jesuit priest in his 60s. And this guy is a fascinating figure. He has, like, one of the weirdest LinkedIn profiles of any figure in the 20th century. And it was his job to be Mussolini and Pius XI's go-between. Mussolini would talk to Venturi, and Venturi would talk to the Pope. The Pope would talk to Venturi, and Venturi would talk to Mussolini. And so on. And it was mostly talking. Most of this was not written down. Most of this was one oral conversation relayed from one guy to another via a third guy. And it's hard not to read Venturi as some kind of sinister, Game of thrones style figure because of that. One wonders how much influence he might have had over both of those guys. And in a great little detail, he didn't even have an official rank at Vatican. It's not like he was official papal emissary or something like that. He was just a guy who was picked to do all this secret whispery diplomacy stuff on the down low. Folks in both the Vatican and the Italian state called him the man in black, and, rather weirdly, at one point he survived an assassination attempt uh, that could have been political, or it could have been a boy that Venturi had been taking sexual advantage of. In any case, you can't read about this guy who spent a whole lot of time with an imperious pope and a fascist dictator, and who looks kind of shady and sinister himself, and not think about, say, Varys or Littlefinger, or, again, other Game of Thronesy type people. He's the kind of guy for whom the term eminence grise was perfect, except that he wasn't a cardinal and that he wore black instead of gray. But after months of negotiation between Mussolini and Pius XI, via Venturi, the Lateran Pact was signed and sealed in 1929. And that treaty was one of the most prominent bits of Italian law from the fascist period that would stay in effect after World War II, Modern Vatican City is still a result of this treaty that Mussolini and Pius XI negotiated via a weird, shady guy with no official rank. That's where Vatican City comes from. The relationship between Mussolini's Italy and the Catholic Church, though, would not be a happy one. While the Church no longer had to deal with secularism or liberalism or socialism, it instead had to compete with a whole new set of idolatry, one in which the state in general and Mussolini in particular were exalted above all. The church was part of Italian life, but at this point, being part of Italian life also meant being part of the fascist state. It would find, just like the conservative liberals who thought that they could maybe work with the black shirts, the church would have to be subordinate to the fascist system. And I haven't even gotten to Italy and the church's role in the Holocaust. That will come later. That's a whole other different kettle of worms. Don't worry, we'll get there. We're not even really into the 1930s yet. Next week, though, we're going to zoom out for a bit of perspective and talk about one of Italian fascism's biggest critics, Antonio Gramsci. And I'm going to talk about that with a very special guest, Megan Zern, or, as you might know her, Z. 
the brilliant co-producer of the British History Podcast. This podcast is ad-free. It's independent. It is paid for by you. Yes, you, listening right now. You listening to this podcast while you are sitting on the bus during your commute. Hey, wouldn't that have been really cool if I said that and you're actually on the bus? Anyway, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be most excellent of you. And thank you, all of you who have done so already. Go on iTunes, give us a rating and review. That helps other people discover the show. Please share the show and talk about it on social media like Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever other social media you're into. I am on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am at Joe's Trekkert on Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 